0: Welcome to Humanities Now, the official podcast of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. We're very excited to have you back with us. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Borschuk, Associate Professor in the Department of English and Director of the Humanities Center at Texas Tech. Humanities Now features monthly conversations with members of the humanities community here at TTU. With every episode, these varied voices help us realize the Center's mission, asking out loud, what does it mean to be human? and demonstrating how we can answer that question from so many different perspectives. This month's show begins with a question. What comes to mind if I ask you to think of the electric guitar? Do you see Jimi Hendrix at Monterey Pop in 67, dousing his axe with lighter fluid to ignite that instrument into a guitar flambe? Or do you picture Bruce Springsteen as photographed by Annie Leibovitz in the 1980s, suspended in the air before the American flag with his beat-up Fender Telecaster strapped around his body. Is it Melissa Etheridge you picture? Hairless from chemotherapy, strumming power chords in tribute to Janis Joplin at the 2005 Grammys, while Joss Stone stalked the stage around her, singing, Take Another Little Piece of My Heart. Or does your imagination jump to Chuck Berry, duck-walking across the stage and bending the strings on so many performances of Johnny B. Good. Whatever you imagine, one thing is certain. It's hard to live in the world after the middle of the 20th century and not have some association with the electric guitar. It's an instrument that evokes so many different sounds, modified by a whole panoply of onomatopoeic apparatuses, the fuzz box, the flanger, the wah-wah. But the electric guitar also summons images, memories of performance, and mythologies. From Bob Dylan dismaying folk fans by plugging one in at Newport in 1965, to St. Vincent's stroblet pyrotechnics at Austin City Limits in 2018, the electric guitar looms large in our collective consciousness. Some are so fabled we know them by name. Eric Clapton's Blackie, Eddie Van Halen's Frankenstrat, B.B. King's Lucille. We revere these rebellious heroes who brandish it. We pretend to play the electric guitar ourselves while listening to favorite tunes in the privacy of our own living rooms or at air guitar competitions across the world. Can you imagine another instrument lending itself so easily to theatrical pretending? Air clarinet? Air harpsichord? I don't think so. On today's show... We take a look at a unique conference that Texas Tech hosted in 2018 and will host again in 2021, The Electric Guitar in American Culture. We'll hear from the faculty who devised that event, musicologists Roger Landis and Christopher J. Smith. Roger and Chris will talk about what inspired the conference and we'll hear about the history of the electric guitar and think about why it resonates so much across American culture. Finally. We'll wrap up with a little bit of fun as Roger, Chris, and I discuss some of our favorite guitar solos and share some thoughts about what makes each of them so electrifying. I'm joined now by Roger Landis and Chris Smith. Thanks to both of you for being here with me today. Maybe we could begin by having you tell me a little bit about the Electric Guitar in American Culture Conference, and especially its first iteration back in 2018.
1: Sure. The premise behind the conference is that it's another part of the suite of activities that are engaged by the TTU Vernacular Music Center. Our mission is to serve as a, a center for research, teaching, and advocacy in all the world's vernacular musics, that is musics that are learned and taught and passed on by ear and in the memory, particularly how they intersect with other aspects of uh, community and culture. The electric guitar has a complex series of communities around it. It has moved through the history of American culture since being introduced. And in fact, it's moved around the world and become a truly indigenous instrument in a wide variety of music cultures. As it happens, both Roger and I are or were, in my case, guitar players ourselves. And we began, as we started to think about this instrument, which is so central, of course, to rock and roll music, but also to jazz in many world styles, we began to think about the idea of a conference which focused not so much upon a particular musical style or even a particular kind of academic discipline, but rather this material object, the electric guitar, And also all of its semiotic associations, all the meanings that it has had through generations and generations of American culture. And I I have to give full credit for the conception and execution of the conference to Roger Landis and his vision, because Roger uh, was a tremendous advocate for this and also had a very clear way not only of framing the instrument, but also of pulling in a wide and inclusive set of constituencies, both in our region, in the American Southwest, and also, in fact, around the world. And so maybe Roger can talk about that vision.
2: Um, The inspiration for the conference came from, I delivered a paper at the first conference, the first conference devoted uh, entirely to the electric guitar, which only happened in 2015. It's kind of astonishing. It's taken that long. It's possibly the most popular instrument in the world right now. If you, if you look at numbers, manufactured and sold, um, it's way beyond the piano or anything that you would consider to be ubiquitous. Um, there was a conference in um, Bowling Green State University in Ohio, and I had a, a paper on Dick Dale that was accepted. And I didn't realize until I got there that it was the first conference devoted to the electric guitar, not just to the guitar, but to electric guitar. And uh, then the next summer, there was um, another one done at the Cite de Musique in uh, Paris. Um, And then a couple of years went by and I checked with both of the people who had been involved with those two. And they said, I asked them if they were gonna continue and they said, no, they were one offs. And I said, well, I'm thinking about starting one in Buddy Holly's hometown, what do you think? And they said, run with it. So we did. And uh, the response was very good. Uh, There is, (laughs) it's a small field, but it's growing. um, The field of electric guitar studies. And as Chris said, I mean, it pulls from every academic field um, potentially. And we had a really wide variety of presenters at the first one in 2018.
0: What makes this conference a little bit different from other academic conferences where you just have, uh, you know, different academics standing at the front of the room reading from a paper? What what is different about the
1: delivery of this conference? Well, we have that too. I'm just joking. But (laughs) I, I will say that as part of the Vernacular Music Center's mission, we sponsor several different recurring events of various sorts. We actually sponsor two recurring conferences. We have the Electric Guitar and American Culture Conference. And then in alternate years, We have an arts practice research conference. And in both cases, I would say, as Roger articulated about electric guitar, the fact of the matter is we are trying to find not only topics, but also a kind of cross fertilization and interdisciplinary conversation on topics which are perhaps underrepresented in the university or underrepresented in conventional scholarship. One of the ways we do that is by finding approaches to the creation of knowledge which cut across disciplines. We, after all, teach in a fine arts doctoral interdisciplinary program. In addition, the electric guitar as both a material object, as a tool for creating art, and as a symbol of culture, cuts across many different academic and popular areas of knowledge as Roger had said but also because we are very we are great proponents of a kind of outward facing scholarship that can speak to and speak with wider and more diverse communities not just academics in the fine arts not just academics in the fine arts and humanities but in a wide variety of both academic disciplines and also popular experience. So we had presenters who came from museum studies. We had presenters who were primarily players. We had presenters working outside of their usual zones, performers delivering academic presentations. We had academics who do usually stand at the front of the room and read a paper who were presenting their research through performance. And that's all about enhancing the cross-fertilization of conversations between and among and beyond and facing outwards from all the disciplines of humanities and fine arts
0: wonderful and you know we've talked a little bit here about the resonance that the electric guitar possesses across american culture and american cultural history in preparing for our conversation I fell into a big rabbit hole Googling who invented the electric guitar. And I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the history of the instrument itself, since there seems to be some debate about when we actually start the history of the electric guitar.
2: Yeah, there's, there's, there's a couple of reasons for that debate. One is the historical record. Isn't really clear. There's a lot of competing claims. The other thing is when we say electric guitar, we might possibly mean one of four different distinct instruments and so just as i do in the rock class when we when, uh, the history of rock and roll class that i teach we we consider what the first rock and roll song is which is kind of kind of a pointless exercise except that it gets them listening and thinking about when it changed to the point where uh, after it was appropriated and renamed when did the music change enough to make sense that it had a new name, a new genre name? And so um, it's, it's a little bit like that, because the first instruments that could be called electric guitars were actually electrified guitars. They were um, acoustic instruments that had some sort of um, uh, reproduction me- mechanism that would allow some sort of amplification or some sort of electric interface, right? Um, and then there were what I would call electroacoustic instruments, acoustic instruments that were built, but built with the idea that they would have a, a pickup put on them. And so they would have this dual function. And if you just think about jazz guitars, that's what those are. Charlie Christian and, and people from around his, uh, his time period in the thirties. And then we, a little bit further, we get to, uh, the body guitar, which is really what we mean when we talk about an electric guitar. When does the guitar become really electric? instead of some sort of hybrid acoustic mechanism. And really the first solid body electric guitars weren't played anything like we expect them to be played. They were played on the lap. They were called Hawaiian guitars and they were played with a slide. Those were the first solid bodies. And then, the people who invented that came up with what they called a Spanish version. And it doesn't mean, have anything to do with Spanish music or the Spanish guitar really. It meant it was played in the Spanish manner, which means it was fretted with the left hand and the f- familiar way that, that we see guitar players playing, not in the Hawaiian fashion. And this was the distinction that was made through the 20s and 30s. So. Now if you want to limit it to the solid body guitar then the fur really starts to fly because <laughs> that's where all the competing claims um uh, come in and those claims have been um kind of um non critically repeated by several generations of mostly journalists but also a few historians you know tisk tisk and <laughs> what we know now and uh it's pretty well established by I have to give credit to Matthew Hill here who did the research. The Roe Patin company, uh, and we had a paper on this in, at our conference in 2018, was the first to market the first modern, uh, electric guitar that as we would define it, then the first solid body guitar that, um, that re- credit for that in terms of marketing it really has to go to, uh, Leo Fender because he built and marketed the first one in 1949. Now, Les Paul built one, but he didn't get it marketed because Gibson turned him down at first. And Paul Bigsby hand-built custom models that he sold out of his shop, uh, but he never really marketed them. They were, it's like a luthier item. And so the idea was around for quite a while, this solid thing that won't feed back through the amplifier. Uh, but really, the lion's share of that credit goes to Leo Fender, because he figured out not only how to make one, but how to market it. And it changed the world of music globally, that technology. So hats off to Leo.
0: See, I knew the history was messier. Uh, I expected, <laughs> when I Googled it, I expected to find Les Paul, and I was going to go from there. And, I, mm-hmm. and it, it, was, it was much more complicated, as, as you just narrated. Yeah. What is it about the electric guitar that you think makes it such a... Uh, that transcends its musical instrumentness. I think um, I, I'd like to hear from both of you about that. Why you think it casts such a long shadow in in American culture?
1: Well, I'm just thinking about what Roger Landis was saying about the the post World War II explosion of feasibility in the marketing and the mass manufacture of this instrument. It's actually a relatively simple instrument when you get to the Fender Broadcaster and the Fender Telecaster. It's a plank with a couple of pickups, but it can be mass produced. That brought the cost down and it made the instrument, therefore, more widely available in the same way that the transistor radio made a very wide diversity of musics far more available to a much more diverse group of audiences than the pre-war valve radio and in both cases the case of the transistor radio and the case of the electric guitar in the post-war period the the explosion of productivity both familial and sociological but also in terms of manufacture and a middle-class frame of reference I think of that as these are quintessentially post-World War II stories. It became possible for a teenager to listen to an enormous diversity of musics on a $2 transistor radio. It became possible for a country musician or a bar band musician to play remarkable music with remarkable consistency on this plank with a couple of pickups. And to me, that it is so much more than just... uh, A technological innovation, it's like emblematic of a kind of social, cultural watershed moment when all of a sudden, say, the transistor radio or the the Fender Telecaster guitar democratizes access to music-experiencing tools. And to me, that's actually kind of a profound story. And... I also think that that's one of the reasons why the electric guitar has gone around the world, because it is an instrument which is so comparatively portable and adaptable and resilient that it can be brought into other musics. And this is a made up word, but it can be indigenized. You can an instrument comes to West Africa in the 1970s. And people who've been playing acoustic music figure out, oh, we, can, we know how to play our music with this new tool or to South Africa or to India or to Java or to places all around the world. This instrument as an object travels and then it is adapted and adopted. And the instrument's conception is enriched and the musics into which it enters are transformed.
2: And I'd like to add that we tend to Well, as evidence that we have um, made the guitar into a symbol is the fact that whenever people talk about it, almost without exception, this is kind of a complaint of mine, um, they only talk about about the part you wear strapped around your shoulders. They don't talk about what's at the end of the cable. And really, that's the other half of the instrument, is the amplifier, without which none of this would have ever happened. And... Leo Fender was a radio repairman who started fixing amplifiers for guitarists. And then he figured out how to make them. And he was making one or two at a time. And then he kept hearing from his clientele, his repair clientele, that they didn't have a good electric guitar. And that's what got him into the guitar business. And so from the very beginning, he was building building uh, and repairing amplifiers. And so it was the complete system that he offered. Um, he wasn't weak on either side. In fact, lots of the people who play Gibsons or other instruments who don't particularly like Fenders will, will love Fender amps often. Right. So it's, it's a complete system. And, you know, the great, uh, tone painter of a guitarist, um, uh, David Torn, who's played on everybody's records, David Bowie and lots of people. Um, he says that if you're not playing the amp, you're not playing the instrument. And I, I think he's right. I mean, it's, it's, it's at least as important as the guitar, and maybe more, uh, in in terms of what we hear. But we don't fetishize the the amp. I mean, some of us do. I'm, I all <laughs> plead guilty to that. But as a culture, we don't. As a culture, we don't. We do it with the guitar, and I think it's because it's an extension of the body. We strap it on, right? <laughs> we wear it. It's like a gun belt, you know. There was a really pretty well done essay back in the seventies in Guitar Player magazine by Jeff Skunk Baxter comparing a guitar slinger to a gunslinger from a, from a Western movie, and you know, uh, in terms of its semiotics, I think there's a lot of similarities.
0: Well, I'm I'm glad that you brought up the technology and remind us reminded us of the technology, Roger, because like many a musically inclined young man, I'm a piano player. When I was in rock bands, uh, back in my teenage years, I was always marveled at guitar players who would show up with a suitcase and they would pull out one pedal, two pedal, three pedals, four pedals, five pedals, and would have to explain to me, this one does this, this one does this, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. the flanger, the wah-wah, et cetera. When did, when did that happen? Uh, the, the sort of, Technological explosion of all the different effects one can produce with an electric guitar.
1: Well, there's there are certain archetypal or really sort of mythographic stories about that, about how fuzz tone came to be invented, and Ike Turner and Sam Phillips with slapback echo, and and a lot of those stories have have a basis in fact. I my my colleague Professor Landis may differ from me. I tend to think that. Um, it's that series of moments in the mid to late 1960s and early 70s when sound sculpting technology for the guitar moved beyond the limits of the recording studio and became something, became a sound sculpting tool, a timbre color that could be available to a guitarist playing on a stage. And that's that is the sort of the the first apotheosis of what guitarists love to call stomp boxes because you stamp on them on the stage and there are lots of people who transform that and there are lots of people who are already doing remarkable things with tonal sculpture in the studio going all the way back to to the legendary les paul but it's really in the late 1960s that guitar slingers people who begin to have this identity as the lead guitar player, the gu- guitar god, you know, in Almost Famous, the great rivalry between the lead singer personality and the lead guitarist personality, right? Mm-hmm. It's in the late 60s and early 70s that various archetypal players begin to employ not just stomp boxes, but the Leslie rotating speaker from the Hammond B3 organ uh, to... to to approach the guitar in an even more orchestral fashion, one of my one of the great themes of the of thinking about guitar and Lubbock is the way that Buddy Holly, in addition to all of his other innovations, Buddy Holly sort of invented the power trio, and Buddy the reason he did that with bass and drums and guitar was because Buddy learned to play in a very orchestral fashion, and in the tradition of the guitar power trio since that time. The guitarists are often people who think in terms of large masses of sculpted sound, whether it's how they play or techniques they employ or the amp and the signal chain or the sound modeling techniques that they sound sculpting techniques that they employ. They're thinking orchestrally. And that's a sort of, I think, with hindsight, seems like a fairly clear cut outgrowth of this idea of treating the solid body electric guitar as an utterly different extension of what this instrument was capable of doing and we'll get to this when we get to our our greatest solos moment in the pod but i would i would put in a claim as uh for Jimi hendrix as having been someone who he's not the only person who did this but he did it most completely in the best integrated fashion at a relatively early moment in a way that changed how any guitar player who's thought about any guitar player who listened to hendrix had to deal with not just his phenomenal technique and incredible charisma, but his absolutely astonishing capacity to invent and manipulate orchestral sound.
2: Jimmy took the electric guitar and he turned it into the electronic guitar because when you process it that way and you amplify it that much, you can completely change the way the instrument reacts. It's no longer just a solid you know, formerly acoustic instrument that you're amplifying. It's something else entirely. Um, It's as different as a Fender Rhodes and a grand, you know, uh, piano, uh, to make a, maybe a weak uh, keyboard analogy. But yeah, I see Jimmy as the first real electronic guitarist. And also listening back after all these years, I hear him reaching for things that the technology he had wouldn't do because he was, he was way beyond the designers Um. And, you know, we just passed to what would have been his 70-something birthday a few days ago. And, uh, and I, was, I was actually thinking about him on that day. What would he be playing today? I'd, I'd love to have the, the 70-year-old Jimi Hendrix acoustic blues album. But I'd also like to know what he would be doing with an electric guitar right now.
1: I'd love to hear the Hendrix orchestral albums. <laughs> there, was a, there was a magnificent series of charts that Gil Evans wrote which were intended to be a collaboration between Hendrix, the soloist and the great Gil Evans, the great jazz arranger, um, a la the Miles Davis, Gil Evans collaboration, Sketches of Spain and, and those discs. And I would, I, I, it breaks my heart that they already were talking about that and that Gil intended that and it, it didn't come to pass.
0: Segment of the show, we're going to have a little bit of fun uh, to wrap up today's episode. This is what you get when you have three academic minded people who are also rabid music fans together in the room. And what Roger and Chris and I are going to do is talk about some of our favorite electric guitar solos and offer a few comments about why we think they are legendary. Uh, And we're going to start with Roger, who is going to talk about someone who's already Loomed large over this podcast today, Jimi Hendrix.
2: So, Jimi Hendrix's 1968 cover of Bob Dylan's 1967 song "All Along the Watchtower" is really notable for a variety of reasons, none of which have to do with the solos um, on the on the tune. Um, I just want to put in because Dylan has said this numerous times that he thinks that it's the best cover that's ever been done of his music. He also says it's better than his original. And in fact, he said that Hendrix taught him what the song was about and how to do it. And when now when he performs it, he does it as a tribute to Jimmy, which <laughs> that's fairly amazing. You know, that's a beautiful thought. Um, and I have to say, yes, I completely agree with Bob Dylan that, that Hendrix found a lot in that song. Uh, that uh, a lot of other people wouldn't, perhaps wouldn't have found. Uh, so in terms of the solos, well, there's four. There's a solo in the intro that lasts about nine seconds in which there's this floaty thing. I've, you know For years, I've tried to figure out if the floating vocality of it, his manipulation of the pitch is simply him bending uh, the, the strings against the frets with his right hand And I've become convinced after listening to it for over 40 years that, of course, he's bending the notes with his left hand, but I think he's also floating on the whammy bar slightly to detune the whole instrument. There's nothing in that that is in tune. It's always moving. If it hits, you know, the right pitch, you know, the standard pitch, he goes through it. It's so vocal. It's... I. If I had to compare it to something, I would, um, without uh, meaning any disrespect uh, religiously, but just speaking musically, it reminds me of some calls to prayer I've heard uh, from Muasins in the Islamic tradition. Their complete control of of pitch. Um, And it's the first nine seconds is really uh, pretty amazing. And then he does a different thing. Each time he plays a solo, there's a solo between the first and second verses, between the second and third, and then he plays uh, the fourth solo. It takes, out, it takes the, the tune out um, with the cue, and then the wind begins to howl, and so he plays the howling wind there uh, to the fade out. Um, there are a couple of sections in it that I'm sure were pre-composed. Um, he may have composed them in the studio. There's a f- famous slide section on an electric 12 string. So he switched guitars. Um, It's an amazing solo because his frame of reference for the notes that he's choosing is basically, if you watch how it was, how it's played and there are some really good videos that teach it on YouTube. If You're interested. Uh, He's playing out of the really familiar pentatonic box patterns that that a lot of blues and rock players play, but it's the bins that he does from those, that kind of home base grid uh, that really, takes it into the stratosphere.
1: Well, when you ask a guitar player to come up with most iconic solos, it becomes an endless list or YouTube playlist or drinking game. But being restrained to three selections, I thought I would go to one of my own touchstones, somebody upon whose playing I was encouraged to go to school, who's the great Wes Montgomery, who is an exemplar of a kind of Indianapolis nap town kind of approach. He uh, played in a high school band with my own jazz mentor, David Baker. Wes is all about time, feel, phrasing, iconic influence upon a very wide diversity of players, some of whom don't sound very much like him because he found ways to play in an extremely idiomatic fashion with beautiful shape, dynamics, tone, articulation, like a great tenor saxophone player on blues, ballads, and jazz standards, which is the absolute heart of jazz playing. That's what a great tenor player can play is, blues, ballads, and standards, and Wes could do that. He did make technical innovations, most notably in his sort of um, sculpting of solos to build toward octaves and then chord melodies, and he's an incredibly powerful influence on many greater players than I. Uh, Most notably, he's a a primary influence on players as diverse as Jim Hall, Pat Matheny, John Schofield, and my old friend Mike Stern, who are four wildly different sounding players, all of whom cite West as a touchstone. So I love four on six. I love it because I had to learn every note of it. And I still love it even after that experience.
0: When we started talking about what are our favorite guitar solos or what are legendary guitar solos? I came at the question a little bit sideways and thought, which guitar solos can I not uh, uh, sing note for note when I hear them come up on my car radio? And the first one that came to mind is Steve Cropper's solo on the Booker T and the MG's tune, Hip Hugger. Uh, Steve Cropper uh, has a, a long notable history as an electric guitar Session player. Um, he's famous for providing a lot of the guitar parts on the, the Stax record sound out of Memphis in the 1960s, and he's the guitar player that gets called out to in Sam and Dave's song Soul Man. And the thing I love about the solo on Hip Hugger, this is a very short tune, and it's not a very long solo at all, but it's so melodic. And I love how Cropper begins by stating a phrase and then responding to his own call answering his own phrase back as he develops the solo all of which comes in a very short amount of space on the tune before he finds his way seamlessly back into the guitar turnaround that leads us back to the verse of a song and really stands out always to me as one of the the great um ear-catching melodic solos in american pop music
1: yeah and i totally second that especially I think of Cropper, he is the ultimate Deep South Stax Volt style session player because he always found a thing to play. And it might be the simplest thing in the world, but it always served the track and it always served the vocals. And there's a reason that they yell, play it, Steve, because Steve would always play it.
2: Okay, so there's a a really amazing YouTube uh, video uh, that comes from uh, the induction ceremonies for the uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame a few years ago, where it's Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers and uh, Jeff Lynn from ELO and Danny um, Harrison, George Harrison's son, and Prince playing While My Guitar Gently Weeps. And it's about a six minute and ten second track. Um, and the the final almost three minutes, it's let's see, his solo is two minutes and forty-two seconds. Prince just steals the show. They just let him have it. Uh he starts to go off like a firecracker, and you can watch them looking at each other and looking at him, and it's like, go, go, go. It's really fantastic. Um and it, <laughs> He starts out kind of playing, you know, kind of blues gestures. And you think, well, I, I remember thinking the first time I saw, wh- where's he going to go? What's he going to do? And by the end of it, he's shredding. And he builds it in such a way, each time it goes around, you know, that that descending bass line chord form that they're improvising over, it's basically the, the part that on the Beatles record Clapton played, right? He's playing in the same section. And I remember after I uh, saw that, It's extraordinary playing. And a lot of people, unfortunately, don't realize that Prince was one of the best guitar players. In fact, there's this old trope that goes around. you, Eddie Van Halen was asked by an interviewer, how does it feel to be the best guitarist in the world? And he says, I don't know. Ask Alan Holdsworth. Someone once asked Clapton the same question. And he says, I don't know. Ask Prince. This is Clapton. (laughs) And he, he, he proves it right there on the stage that he really had it. And, uh, and he just milks it for all it's worth at the end as they're fading out. And he's got this incredible pink like, uh, hat on, uh, with kind of a wide brim and he stops playing, grabs the guitar and without touching the strap, he flips the strap off over the hat and tosses the guitar into the audience in one movement and it's it's an extraordinary piece of showmanship <laughs>
1: when we started putting these lists together, Roger Landis was very generous in mentioning that he would cite two of my favorite guitarists, Jimi Hendrix and uh, Prince, because that left more space for me to talk about someone who of all of the 1960s and seventies guitarists is probably the person who I most aspire to be like in terms of sheer, artistic stamina and courage. I'm talking about the great Frank Zappa, who was an entirely self-taught blues guitar player who led his own bands, ran his own record companies, discovered generations of great talent and essentially represents the, I would say, inevitable with hindsight result when you combine Johnny Guitar Watson, 78s, and the music of Edgar Varese because what Frank Zappa did on the guitar and what he does on this beautiful song Outside Now is so quintessentially Zappa that no one else could ever possibly have sounded like that. Frank was trained as a visual artist and he talked about guitar solos as being a place where he was sculpturing air, mistreating molecules is what he called it. This song Outside Now is also a very powerful artistic statement because it's the expressive climax of his album opera called Joe's Garage which posits a near future America in which music has been declared a crime. And so in Joe's garage, the eponymous title character has been in prison for playing music. And he's imagining what it's going to be like when he gets out. And it's a powerful metaphor for artistry and the death of artistry. He played polyrhythmically on this track. He's playing with his, I think one of the great vocalists, the great Ike Willis, who sings the track. And he's playing with the drum set player, Vinnie Colaiuta, who is probably the, the most technically advanced musician who ever played in Frank Zappa's band. And Vinnie is pacing Frank every step of the way on this remarkably beautiful artistic creation for somebody who could be as cantankerous and abrasive as Zappa. The sheer beauty that pours out of him in this is just, to me, is just endlessly moving.
0: Well, talking about cantankerous band leaders is probably a good transition into my next pick, which is the solo on Steely Dan's Peg from their uh, album Asia. And uh, all three of us, I know, are big Steely Dan fans. And we were talking about Roger Landis's generosity. He was very generous when I pled, please let me be the one who gets to talk about a Steely Dan solo in this segment of the show. There are countless great solos on the electric guitar on steely dan's albums over the years and the one i chose um again it's like with the steve cropper solo i chose it because i like its economy but also i love the the story behind it which is uh the the leaders of steely dan donald fagan the lead singer and his songwriting partner walter becker wanted this not very long guitar solo and the upbeat song "Peg." And they went through many studio musicians taking different attempts at this solo and none of them pleased Becker and Fagan who are legendary, were legendary in their Steely Dan recording sessions for overworking uh, studio players to get what they wanted. And then finally, as they tell it, in the BBC classic albums documentary about the making of this album, Asia, Jay Graydon Uh, studio musician came in and nailed it. And the thing I love about the solo, again, is that it's not a lot of notes. It actually begins with this beautiful, as Becker and Fagin described it in the documentary, I think they describe it as a Polynesian beginning to the solo with this wonderful kind of slide beginning uh, before you get a bit more blues playing at the end. But um, it seems deceptively simple i think as a guitar solo given the amount of work and studio musician labor that went into it and uh, and it's a really nice instrumental break on a otherwise um memorable pop tune from the late 1970s
2: the the thing that has always struck me about that um solo on peg is it's a rock sound it's distorted he's playing through a deluxe reverb you know on 11, <laughs> um, and a lot of blues phrasing, but he's playing over kind of bebop like changes. So he can't make the same note choices he would normally make in a rock setting or a blues setting. And so it's this really weird, like, it, it's amazing that he, I think he did that in two takes. OK, so Eddie Van Halen's it's 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 nearly a true solo, a solo without any accompaniment, except when it starts. This is eruption. Um, when it starts, there's a little bit of drums, a little bit of bass, and then they drop out very quickly. Um, and there's a reason for that is because the beginning of it is actually a lift from another tune that Eddie used to quote when he played. A solo section in their gigs, their bar gigs, you know, in in, around L.A. early on. Um, And then he takes it somewhere else with another quote from a classical etude. And I forget the the composer's name. And then he goes into his two hand tapping thing uh, for which he was famous. He didn't invent it, but he a lot of people could uh, would say he perfected it. And he did it at a level that I think few people ever do. Um, and the solo was only a minute 42. The story is that he used to do it as kind of a one off on their stage shows. He'd start with the two quotes and then go wherever, uh, although he didn't typically live before he recorded it, use the two hand tapping. He was in the studio and the producer they were working with heard him warming up with it and said, we're going to put that on the record. And then he made Eddie play it, and Eddie, Eddie said later that he didn't play it right. There's a mistake right at the beginning um, that he always hears now. But um, yeah, it's pretty um, notable, I think, technically, but also the sound that he got without the whole band playing, you can really hear all the layers of the way he processed his sound. and he's not he's only using a couple of pedals. there's an echo unit and a phaser. Uh, and then the uh, Marshall amp for distortion, and so if you want to understand Eddie's ethos as a guitar player, that's a really great track to listen to because you can hear just how deep the sound is that he makes, how complex it is. Uh, with the singer and and the bass and the drums, sometimes they have to create a uh, create a smaller pocket for it in the mix, but here you can hear it in all its glory. <laughs>
1: Richard Thompson is another one of those amalgams like Frank Zappa, like Jimi Hendrix, who starts from one place in terms of his guitaristic influences and goes to some places unimaginable. And in the case of Thompson, he's apparently able to do it night after night on songs he's played for decades, as well as on new songs. He's maybe one of the greatest songwriters that rock and roll has ever produced. He's certainly one of the darkest songwriters. He came of age in the late 1960s playing with English folk rock bands, especially the band Fairport Convention. He's very strongly influenced by country guitar and by Buddy Holly, in fact, in terms of his physical technique, the instruments he plays, the sound he goes for. But he's also really influenced by the English folk music that he discovered or rediscovered with these bands in the late 60s and the 1970s. So he sounds at times very much like he's playing bagpipe tunes or fiddle tunes. But quintessentially, he's somebody who knows how to enter the zone as an improviser. And in this song, which is, I think, one of his great songs called You Can't Win, the solo just builds and builds and builds and builds. And it doesn't necessarily get faster and it doesn't necessarily get louder. It just becomes more and more and more intense sculpting the sound, shaping the sound, shaping the overall dynamics, the overall growth of the thing. And it just becomes more and more and more intense until it's like a maelstrom. It's like he takes you into the maelstrom and it's absolutely mesmerizing.
0: guitar solo that I picked for my three Desert Island guitar solo picks is one that maybe people don't realize who it is when they hear the song. I think that many uh, pop music fans are well aware of Stevie Ray Vaughan's great contributions on the electric guitar in American music. And many people are very aware of David Bowie's music and the tune Let's Dance uh, from the 1980s. But I don't know if everybody knows that it's Stevie Ray Vaughan playing guitar on, uh, on Bowie's tune. The thing that I love about Stevie Ray Vaughan's playing on this, on this tune, particularly the, the instrumental breaks near the end of the song, is how tantalizing this is. Especially if you know Stevie Ray Vaughan as a player. And anybody who knows Stevie Ray Vaughan's music knows that he had incredible chops, right? I mean, as a virtuosic blues player, I saw him live once and was blown away by how much he could play. And yet, his playing on the Bowie track is so understated. In fact, it's, it's mostly a kind of set of motifs based around single notes, bended notes. And um, it's that combination, that tension that a great improviser can produce by not playing everything he can play at once. I mean, we talked about Miles Davis earlier in our conversation today. Miles Davis was the master at that at recognizing how much the quiet in between notes creates the solo itself. And so for me, I'm always excited when, uh, when Bowie comes on in my car and I hear let's dance and I hear Stevie Ray Vaughn giving me a sense of what he can do, but not putting it all on the table at once.
1: Yeah. And what's beautiful about that, really, we can loop back to some names and idioms and ideas that have showed up earlier in our conversation, because Stevie Ray talked about getting drafted into Bowie's band. And he said, yeah, I wound up playing a lot of Albert King licks because Albert fits over everything, which is a beautiful image, really, because Stevie went to school on Albert and youtube videos of stevie jamming with albert and albert was an extremely idiosyncratic and extremely economical player and so the idea that this sort of space age blues man from texas could figure out a way to go back to the deepest roots of his own playing to play on this very sort of quintessentially 80s kind of brilliant techno pop and have albert king's voice just speaking through like uh like barbed wire is an amazing accomplishment.
0: there you have it. Just a small list of some examples of some of the great electric guitar solos in the past several decades of American popular music that we like. I'm grateful to Christopher J. Smith and to Roger Landis for talking with me about their conference and about all of these great performances here today. And if you'd like to listen to more, we've compiled a YouTube playlist of great electric guitar solos that's available in the show notes for this episode. As well, we have the call for papers for the next iteration of the Electric Guitar in American Culture Conference. So if you're interested in presenting next year in 2021, please have a look at that. That brings us to the end of another episode of Humanities Now. I'd like to thank the Humanities Center staff, Justin Hughes, Tara Okopi, and Callie Watson, and of course to Tyler Simpson for our original theme music. I'm Dr. Michael Borschuk, and I'll see you next month.